We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Hello everyone, today we have Fran Shua on the show. Fran is a psychotherapist and author of a series of articles titled Why Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11. Fran draws on her knowledge of psychology to explain why it is so uncomfortable for us to even entertain certain ideas when they threaten our existing worldview. This obviously has an application that is far broader than 9-11 itself. In this interview, Adam and I asked Fran all about that before going on to quiz her on the psychopathic mindset. How can we understand individuals that view the very value of human life in an utterly different way? I would thoroughly recommend reading the series. It's linked to below. Now here's Fran starting us off by explaining her background training as a therapist. Well, first of all, I majored in the sciences as my undergraduate degree. I have an undergraduate degree, bachelor in the sciences. And I thought I was going in that direction to probably teach science. Uh, but um, my, I didn't go that way. I, I was very drawn to psychology and wind up getting a master's, uh, a particular type of master's, where it took me in the realm of psychology. And then uh, I um, figured out why later is because I had a lot of healing to do. <laughs> and of my own healing. And uh, so uh, as the, the years went by, I discovered what's called primal therapy. And it's, it's known to people as primal scream. And there was a book put out by author Janov called The Primal Scream. And it really um, hit home with a lot of us as a very deep way to approach our healing. Um, now, it's a misnomer because primal does not mean screaming. Primal means paying attention to your body sensations and your own emotions about current events and following those emotions, following those body sensations uh, and seeing where they take you. And they will eventually take you to something in your past. Uh, for example, if you're very angry with an authority for some reason, if you follow that anger and what's underneath that anger, which are the more vulnerable feelings, you will eventually get to um, uh, uh, anger and hurt and terror with perhaps a father or a mother, you know, and that's where the healing is, is to go back to the origin of those emotions. Um, 
So I did that for a few years, primal therapy. And interestingly enough, many of us in primal therapy were spontaneously having spiritual uh, experiences. I know people who are having out-of-body experiences, and they were having uh, other types of spiritual experiences. But Arthur Janov, the, the founder of that therapy, did not believe in spiritual experiences. He believed there were... Uh, uh, just a, a manifestation of our pain that we carried from our childhood. Um, so, but I had a very profound spiritual experience in a dream when I was concentrating very, very hard on trying to get to the core of my pain as I was doing this therapy. And that spiritual experience led me in the direction of, of a... Um, uh, a spiritual path and this particular one was uh, Kundalini and uh, I've, I was searching desperately for a teacher I found a teacher who in his presence I had the same uh, unitive experience of all of creation that I had in my dream and I that's how I knew he was my teacher so I was involved in that for quite a number of years, and that in itself led me back to psychotherapy, interestingly enough. Um, and this time I found Stanislav Grof, who, would, who he and his wife had developed holotropic breathwork, which was almost the same as primal therapy. It was very similar in that it's a very intense regressive therapy in which we regress back to our traumas and we release all of the feelings all of the emotions that we could not have at that time. It was not safe to have those emotions and feelings. It's almost like an exorcism. We, we, uh, we uh, remove the feelings and the emotions that we're carrying from our childhood traumas. And, um, and, but interestingly enough, Stanislav Grof took the spiritual experiences very seriously. So it was something very easy for me to resonate with. And uh, so that's how I got involved in the clinical work that I did. I finally realized that I was um, healed enough, you know, not healed completely, but healed enough that I could help other people heal. And so we started working as a psychotherapist. Uh, so that's how I got into the whole realm of psychotherapy. I got into it because I needed to heal myself. And I uh, did some very deep healing uh, deep healing that most people would never even think of doing because it's so arduous. Uh, but um, it has, I'm a completely different person because of it. I'm a much freer person because of it. And um, I'm still healing. Of course, we're all still growing. We never stop, you know. So, but that's how I got into that. And then when 9-11 came along, uh, I was shocked like everybody else of, of the whole uh, event. And then, uh, but I, I did have on the day of 9-11 as it was happening, it came out of my mouth, I don't think this could have happened without somebody knowing about it and allowing it to happen. So intuitively, I was suspicious from the beginning. Can I pause um, you there? Yes. Fran, and just yeah. rewind um, to the 10th of September, 2001. Yes. And yes. everything before that is... I, we could actually just talk for an hour about everything you've just said, but we're going to sure. resist that temptation and talk about 
the, the geopolitics, but throughout yeah. the, the decades through the, I'm guessing 70s, 80s, 90s, right. uh, that you're doing this psychotherapeutic healing work, obviously yeah. a lot's going on around you in society. You're going through different yes. presidents and there's the Reagans and the Iran Contras and the Clintons, there's a war in Iraq and Yugoslavia. Right. To September 10th, 2001, what's your sense of the united states government and its role in the world whether it's a is it a for an imperial force in your mind or something that's generally benevolent or what, how did you conceptualize it prior to 9 11. i knew that the u.s was not benevolent around the world uh, i um i had worked in the early 1980s in the uh campaign for a nuclear weapons freeze I was very much a peace activist and um, uh, I knew that we were doing some harm around the world. I can't remember how much I knew at that time, but I definitely did not think we were the, uh, uh, the exceptional nation on the planet that never did harm to anyone else. Um, I fully believe that we should not have nuclear weapons, that we should not be uh, interfering with other people's governments, uh, that sort of thing. But I didn't know in detail a lot at that on September 10th. Okay, so that, that's great and leads us into then. So you have this initial feeling that this couldn't have happened about someone knowing. And how did that progress for you then, both in terms of acquiring information about the event and also in terms, I suppose, of your psychological reaction, maybe resistance to that information, perhaps going back and forth in your mind. What was that like in the time after 9-11? Well, first of all, I believe the official story, uh, official story, <laughs> that it was uh, uh, that, you know, 19 Muslims uh, attacked us. I believe what we were told. Uh, although I found myself saying, uh, believing, as many progressive type people do, that it was blowback, because I knew enough to know that we were not innocent in the world, you know. Um, so I, I thought it was probably blowback. I would like to have talked to Osama bin Laden and said, why did you do this? You know, uh, what's going on? Tell me your reasoning for this, you know. Uh, so, um, uh, and I was instrumental in helping people, uh, speakers, professors go to churches, uh, to explain to people why they hate us, you know, because that was the that was what we were told. They attacked us because they hate us. So most people said, "Why would they hate us? We're the wonderful nation on earth," you know. But and so I was wanting these professors to go and talk to these people in churches and tell them probably that there was this blowback, you know, from the things we've done in the world. So that's kind of where I was at that time. Um, and then, of course, uh, someone handed me uh, a VHS and then the book, uh, Nafis Ahmed's, uh, the, um, oh gosh. It's War, War on Truth. War on Freedom. War on Freedom, yeah. War on Freedom. And, of course, I'm, again, I'm shocked, as everyone is, when they hear any evidence that... Uh, uh, contradicts what our government told us. I'm, I'm shocked. And I'm shocked enough to start following it up, you know. Uh, so I 
uh, ask people to come over and look at this film with me and discuss it with me. And let's try to figure out what's going on. Just like today, we're trying to figure out what's going on with this coronavirus. What's, we're trying to figure it out. I was involved in getting friends to come over to my house and let's look at this. Let's figure this out. You know, what's going on? And so I just continued from there studying. Um, and uh, I must have read that book, uh, The War on Freedom, four times and made a summary of it and went to my representative, Diana DeGette, talked to her executive director. And he actually told me, uh, interestingly enough, uh, I, I had a bunch of material that I gave to to him to give to Diana to get. And he said, he looked at me right in the eye and he said, don't think that I don't know what our CIA is capable of. Now, I never got such a forthcoming <laughs> remark from her office ever again and he stopped working there. Someone else came on as her executive director. And that was the last forthcoming remark I got from that office. From, from then on, I only got uh, stonewalled, you know. So I tried going the appropriate channels. I tried educating my representative and I got uh, uh, severely stonewalled by her after that. Even though I was being very professional, very uh, evidence-based in what I would present to her, you know. Okay, so you're going through this process in yourself and perhaps you're meeting some psychological resistance there or you're reading and rereading the book at some point you're going to see the information about the towers coming down by explosives which kind of takes it to another level in terms yes, of right. plausibility and the scale of the thing and could they really do that uh, because you know allowing allowing it to happen is one thing but you know having skyscrapers rigged with the biggest controlled demolitions ever is, is taking it to a whole other level and also you're talking to people and you're meeting uh, resistance in them okay now in in my experience I, I was very much interested in 9-11 truth right from the get-go um and i would obviously meet utterly incredulous reactions in the people around me just didn't want to know about it but that was very surprising to me because i was very young and up until that point i had shared a worldview with everyone around me i'd never met anyone really where i had a significant divergence of opinion on what the world is so this is like a new experience for me and hitting walls of like but what why are we suddenly like not able to communicate why can't why can't you step over here and see this from my perspective and of course you're kind of coming into this up and running right because you maybe could anticipate from your psychotherapeutic work that people are not going to take kindly necessarily to this information so what was that like you know both wrestling of your own internal um trials around it and then meeting that meeting those barriers and blocks in other people mm -hmm. yeah i i was also shocked when i first heard this uh contradictory information uh there's this book nafisa med's book and the uh, uh video that i'd gotten before that and i spent i don't know how long but maybe a couple of weeks of sleepless nights you know not being able to sleep well i was I was uh, very stressed. I was upset about this information. It was scary, you know, it's scary information because as I have started absorbing this information, I could see it was fearful. I was fearful. It's like, 
wow, if that's true, then they could do anything. They, whoever they are, whoever did this, they could do anything if they can do this, you know. And I was full of fear. Um, and, um, and it lasted for a while that, you know, I had trouble sleeping and, you know, I got over that. Um, and, but I just kept pressing on um, and looking at more and more information. Then when I finally ran across a video that, that was stating that the World Trade Center towers came down at free fall. Now we know that's not quite true. Now we know from the measurements, they came down at about two thirds of free fall. But, but nevertheless, when I heard free fall and I saw building seven come down, that changed everything. It was not just allowing it to happen, that ha this had to be orchestrated. It was very obvious, you know. So, um, so that did take me to the another, another level of, of this issue of what was going on. Um, and then I didn't really know from my psychological background that people would be very resistant to this. Uh, I really, uh, I don't know, I must have just assumed that people were going to be rational and they were going to hear the information. They were going to be upset like I was and they'd get over it and they would, uh, they would see the evidence and they would change their worldview. So I must have just assumed that people would uh, look at evidence and, uh, 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 and easily, easily change their worldview about what happened on 9-11. But I was wrong. And what shocked me as much as anything was all the resistance I ran into. <laughs> so, so it was, and so what I started doing then, because I was so surprised at people's resistance, that I started being like a scribe, I would write down as soon as I could get to a piece of paper, I would write down these spontaneous remarks that people made to me uh, that describe their resistance. You know, for example, one good example is a friend of mine, we were riding in the car together, and she said, Fran, you cannot expect anyone to listen to evidence that would turn their world upside down. And so I just wrote down all those spontaneous, word for word, those spontaneous events, those spontaneous statements. Uh, and interestingly enough, with that particular person, uh, I, I waited for a little while, we chatted for a little while after that, and I said, you know, I was very interested in that statement you just made a little while back uh, about listening to uh, evidence, and would you repeat that statement for me? And she couldn't remember what she had said. Interesting. It's interesting and what people so, so spontaneously all say. Very, yes, all this was very interesting to me. Uh, and so I would write down, I had a whole page full of these spontaneous uh, reactions that people would give me. And so I didn't know, I had no plan of doing anything with it. I was just writing them down just as almost like a diary to see to what I heard. This is what I heard today, you know. And then eventually they were used in my series. Okay, because that, that reaction, it, it's not without wisdom, right? Because over the years, I've, um, I've come to think maybe it's a good thing that people do have a certain resistance to their worldview shattering. Mm -hmm. okay, and, and, you know, psychotherapeutically, we might say that because there's, there's two reactions people can have to encountering 9-11, right? One is to put up the wall of resistance and maintain 
their worldview. Um, and the other is to leap in with both feet and then start potentially falling and falling and falling until yes. they land on the flat earth. And yes. what I mean by that is just going right down the conspiracy rabbit hole. And right. I think for a lot of us, uh, we do have a period where the world kind of falls apart. And yes. then it's not obvious to me how I managed to reassemble it into, okay, this, not that. But when I sort of seriously got into this about 10 years ago, reading more about US geopolitical history and things, I think there was a year where I just floundered around. And I just, mm -hmm. I didn't know where to look, you know, satanic PDFR networks, uh, the reptilians, uh, because <laughs> the, the first book I read on this was, um, actually just prior to 9-11, it was one of the David Icke's books. And I, I read it purely because I'd just finished school and I wanted something that challenged my conventional narratives. And I thought, this is like mad stuff. This is great. The whole world is different to what I thought. I want to read this. <laughs> um, but to me, everything in the book was so outrageous that, that I had no real way to distinguish one from the other so that the cia traffics drugs wasn't all that much less outrageous to me than the queen being a shape-shifting reptilian right i mean because the see the idea of the cia trafficking drugs was just like i mean that was just the craziest thing that's absolutely true of course and like now it's, it's uncontroversial but you know but you can coming from you know um a time where my my image of America is what you see on the movies, you know, it's like Hulk Hogan and, you know, all that kind of thing. Uh, that was so far. So there can be this fracturing. And then I think for some people that can carry on being a problem and a kind of conspiracy psychosis can set in. Yes. So we see it like there's either too much resistance or there's a complete dissolution. And Adam, you might have some thoughts there. But I, I don't jump in. I'm, I don't want to dominate the, the questions, Adam, if you, mean, so if you do, or otherwise I'll, I'll ask Fran to respond to that. No, not at all. In fact, uh, you know, in keeping with the psychological aspect of 9-11, um, this is something that is mostly foreign to most people mm -hmm. who are invigorated with the event itself and those who barely know anything about it. Um, but going with your most recent uh, work, you uh, posted an article called The Role of the Media, Operation Mockingbird. And I believe you posted that to A&E 911 Truth. Um, yeah, they, they're, they're publishing the, this series, yeah. Right, it was, it's a long story. Right, uh, now Operation Mockingbird, which was a, uh, a secret program designed to manipulate media, both overseas and the United States for um, propaganda purposes. On September 11th, we saw the repeated scenarios of watching the towers uh, collapse, mm -hmm. witnessed mm -hmm. by most of America around the world. Um, my question to you would be twofold. What level of psychological manipulation was being portrayed by the media on that day and in the coming days and weeks of continuous coverage? And what was the primary goal of manipulating these people? Well, I can only speak to you from what I've learned from my studies that I have, uh, the studies I've done in order to write this series of essays and, uh, and what my thoughts would be about that. Um, I can go, I can answer questions on two levels. The studying the, the psychological research that's been done about what happens to us when we hear disinformation or see those towers coming down and also from my clinical experience. I have those two things to pull together. Um, but showing those towers coming down again and again, 
uh, from my perspective, this would do one thing, which is create fear and outrage in the public. And we pretty much know that when people are uh, uh, fearful, when they're uh, made very fearful, they're very easily manipulated and they believe what their authorities tell them. They, they want to believe their authorities, that what their authorities are telling them about what reality is. So the towers were coming down and our authorities were telling us these Muslims attacked us because they hate our freedoms. And then the response by the public and the media was, let's roll. Because we're a warring culture. You know, we're, we're a very warring type culture. Uh, we pride ourselves on our ability to fight uh, the enemy and win. And so um, what happened was, you know, you know, the rest is history. You know, Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, it's like they have attacked us. They have hurt us. They've wounded our nation. Let's roll. Let's go get them. You know, it's that anger and that outrage, you know, that is stimulated to get people to go to war. It's the same thing as we, I think it was Goring in uh, Nazi Germany who said, uh, you can always, doesn't matter what kind of government you have, you can always get the people to go to war. You know, some poor slob on a farm, he doesn't want to leave the farm, he doesn't want to go to war, but all you have to do is tell, tell the people that they've been attacked and tell them that to, uh, 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 to not react to this attack would be unpatriotic, you know. So you get people fearful. People, when people get fearful, they get angry, they get outraged, and they're ready to go fight. So this is how the public was won over you know, to uh, accept this going, this, uh, this uh, war that would, war on terror that would last, you know, who knows how long, you know, our lifetimes or more. Uh, people would accept that because after, after all, we were attacked with this horrendous attack that stimulated so much fear in people. Uh, so I would see the towers coming down again and again was, uh, well, it's the media doing, it's media doing what they do. And, you know, they're getting ratings, they're getting people to look. Uh, but it's also, from the government standpoint, it's, it's uh, getting people to go to war, you know. And uh, that's what I see. Do you see anything different? Well, uh, yeah, I would, I would say that uh, most of what you said is true. I, I also think that when it comes to the media as well, um, that they often present a false narrative in order to obtain an objective. And this is something I believe a friend of yours, Ken Jenkins, had brought up. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, in 2004, he did a lecture called The Psychological Aspects of 9-11. And in part of that lecture, uh, it was based upon Project Censored. And that was a research group which uh, broadly covered underreported stories not covered yes. by the legacy media. Yeah, I know Project um, Right. Now, this now more than ever is more pronounced in this day and age than, than when Jenkins produced it in 2004, that the media itself panders to the irrational emotions of the viewer and often delves into the nonsensical, which we're seeing for the last uh, four years. 
Is that what's happening at the, at the present moment right now? The media pandering to uh, fears of people? Yes. Yeah, I think, and I really appreciate Ken Jenkins' work. His work educating us about our biases is so important. You know, it's, it's become one of my favorite things to say, this is my bias, you know, <laughs> you know and to, be, to hopefully recognize that I have biases, you know, and that's where I have preconceived notions and biases that, that come from my background, from my history. And so it's, I think it's really important to recognize those. Um, but um, let me see, I was losing the, the train of thought. Does the media pander to uh, fear? Yes. One of our biases from what I've read is that um, we human beings tend to be biased toward looking at negative news rather than positive news. And I think that's uh, because uh, for survival, we need to know what's going on around us. And we're going to pay attention to the things that are threatening. Uh, so our bias, as human beings, it appears that our biases are uh, slanted toward negative news. We're going to pick up a newspaper, we're going to watch a TV show that, that gives us the negative news rather than the positive news, you know. Is that, is that approaching your question at all? No, not at all. Perfectly okay. answered it, actually. So. <laughs> what? I perfectly answered it, actually, so thank you. Okay. So, it, do you have more on that? <laughs> oh, um, Richard, did you well, want to well, follow up? I'll just pick up on um, where we were a moment ago with the, um, I'm interested to ask a bit more about your interactions with uh, people then, um, in terms of where they've been productive maybe. What, I suppose, what constitutes being productive as well? Because not, um, not everyone who, looks at this information, goes off and becomes a hardcore truth activist, right? So, uh, you know, what, what constitutes a productive interaction in terms of um, what outcome are we looking for when we talk to people about not just 9-11 truth, but maybe suggesting that the state commits more crimes than is generally acknowledged in general. Um, and I suppose also on that second point then of, of the opposite side of the coin, which I suppose I think like truth movements don't address so much, is mm -hmm. what happens with the danger of someone's worldview just shattering mm -hmm. and then going into really far out conspiracy land, the kind of conspiracy yes. psychosis. How, what, what do you make of all that? I, I definitely think that's uh, that does happen, and it is a danger. I had one uh, activist who was uh, coming to our monthly meetings at one point who told me once he. Uh, I was driving him somewhere and he said, I have to drop out of this. I can't come to any more of these meetings. He says, I'm in, says, I'm really having some very serious problems. And he looked at me, he says, because of 9-11, he says, it's serious. I'm having serious problems. And he had to drop out. And I said, fine, go do what you need to do. You know, get yourself uh, back to a sane state. Uh, I still don't know what kind of problems he was having. He was just letting me know. Um, uh, other times people, I think, yes, they, they, um, start, uh, connecting too many dots, you know, dots that don't need to be connected. Um, uh, if they, once they see something nefarious that looks like it comes from our government, then 
they jump to conclusions. They, they leap to conclusions. For example, I mean, take the coronavirus right now. I don't know. I mean, we're all trying to figure this out, just like I was trying to figure out 9-11 at the time. We're all trying to figure out what's going on here around this coronavirus. You know, uh, do we just strictly believe our authorities? Do we question our authorities? Do we listen to the other, other experts who are giving us different information? We're all trying to figure it out. But there will be people, and I suspect people who, uh, many more people who have been in the Nile of Truth movement because they have been able to see what uh, authorities are capable of, <laughs> you know, they will jump very quickly to assuming that this um, uh, virus is man-made, was uh, made to, uh, for some nefarious purpose, uh, was accidentally released from, a, was, a, was purposefully released from a lab. Now, it may have been, I don't know, but I can see people leaping to conclusions because of their preconceived notions. Um, well, let's say, even if people had, uh, grew up in a family where uh, the parents, uh, the father or the mother, were manipulative and lied and uh, were uh, very toxic in this way. Well, I think those people would also tend to jump, leap to conclusions that our authorities, which we often see as parental figures, are doing the same thing. So, um, so yes, so, so I think it's a very great danger that people will not take each incident, each thing they hear, individually and look carefully at the evidence but they will leap to conclusions they will they will uh rush down the rabbit hole they would connect too many dots i think that's a very great danger okay. so this is a big interest of mine because we didn't have these problems in the 90s because everyone watched either the bbc or fox or cnn and yeah. everyone had the same worldview and now yeah i'm noticing on my facebook you know i have um friends who are posting about how corona comes from a lab I have friends who say, well, I don't know about that, but look, at it's going to devastate the economy. And others saying, no, no, we all need to stay indoors and do what the government tells us. And others saying, you know, it's, it's uh, Bill Gates' plot to take over the world on behalf of the Rockefellers. Mm -hmm. and, um, I have sympathy of all those positions, actually, you know. So I, I personally transitioned from a place of, like, I wouldn't say certainty about the world, but no real reason to question it as a teenager prior to... 9-11 and, and well, 9-11 for me just coincided with um, a kind of uh, spiritual and political awakening. Okay, so it was just at that time anyway, I was starting to question the world and then, then it happened and that accelerated everything. Mm -hmm. So I moved into a place and the natural thing to do is to look for another kind of certainty, right? And say, okay, it's, yes. you know, get, get, a, get a meta theory that ties mm -hmm. everything up. And I think initially I was, partly I was initially drawn to people that offered that. Mm -hmm. um, and also the people that offer that tend to be much bigger. So if you type in 9-11 Truth on YouTube, well, certainly 10 years ago, the only man that's going to pop up is Alex Jones. Because he, and he, I wouldn't say had a total meta theory, but he's got a pretty big meta theory about the New World Order agenda. And, and, and he has gone off into, in recent years, into how it's all sort of controlled by otherworldly forces, a bit, sort of, a bit like David Icke. And, and David Icke, his meta theories are so grand that they go back, you know, I read a few of his books and um, go back to the origins of the universe sometimes and it starts explaining the conspiracy at that point and how it plays out from there. And that's wonderful, you know, but it's not the place I've come to, not just in terms of uh, geopolitics, in other areas too. 
the more I step into something, the more I come to recognize how little I know and how much of a mystery things are. Yeah, you know, and right. I'm grounded in uncertainty. And mm-hmm. uh, that's why I, I labeled a lot of my stuff uh, deep state because I find looking out into the world, I don't find a, a consistent explanation of, oh, it's all about this. I find, yeah, but whatever we can say, we can say that events on the surface, the appearance is moved by the currents in the deep. And it was also for me, that was a mirror of uh, explanations of my own consciousness spiritually that I was interested in Eastern spiritual paradigms. But then I thought, well, you know, maybe it's a bit too reductionist to say, yeah, we're all one consciousness at the end of it, as they might. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it misses some of the nuance in there. But what I can definitely say is that it's very deep. Like consciousness is not a boring thing. And if you go into it, it will just keep opening and opening and opening mm-hmm. up to infinity. So that like this idea of, of being grounded in mystery or being grounded in depth felt more better to me. It felt like healthier and more fulfilling and with more potential for growth and less room for dogma. But it's a harder thing to be grounded in and it's not what most people go for. And, and it's not as appealing, right? Like if I'm sure that if I had a certain narrative and just made videos explaining this is how the world works, uh, they would just get more hits than me saying, oh, I don't know, it's all a bit of a, but it's really deep, you know? And that's something that I have not um, come to reconcile in my own mind, really. That what I see as healthy is not necessarily what's attractive. I mean, it's this need, this certainty addiction that human beings exist with. Yeah. So um, I'm sure there's a question in there somewhere, Fran, but anything you'd <laughs> like to comment on there, please go ahead. Well, I'll comment too. <laughs> so I... Um... I agree with you that it's a wonderful thing to be so secure in one's being that one can stay in an stay in uncertainty, you know, to not have to jump to conclusions. I think that's a very healthy thing. Uh, now, I'm wondering in my back of my mind too: is it if? Uh, uh, staying in, in uncertainty could also be an avoidance, you know, as well. An avoidance of, of, of uh, I mean, we don't want to be uncertain about some things, you know, like, for example, you know, maybe all the uh, uh, slaves that were lynched, you know, in America, in the South. Yeah. Did the we Holocaust don't want really to happen. be uncertain about whether that is moral or not moral, sure. you know. We, we, we have to, at some point, say, uh, because of this, I believe this, you know. And if, if something comes along that uh, refutes that belief, you know, some evidence comes along, then I will be open to changing my belief. But so far, you know what I mean? It's like, it could yeah. be avoidance as well. I think you know? I have a lot of moral certainty, actually. Um, like I'm quite, I find I'm quite moral absolutist. And I think that's sometimes a reaction to a world I see as being very moral, morally relativistic. Okay. Like we all kind of, maybe we didn't like the Iraq war, but we all got over it pretty quickly. Okay. And you know, the Labour party was not, um, disbanded, uh, because it it was involved in a genocide and neither was the Republican party. You know, so, so I find that I'm, I'm disgusted by that kind of moral relativism and such. I'm quite morally um absolutist it would be more on things like science and, and particularly history and what do we really know about this narrative uh, that i would be more of a sense of uncertainty but i think you're making a very good point there that there does need to be something of a juxtaposition because i'm not saying that oh, i have no idea 
you know, what was behind the revolution in Iran in 1953-9. It was the CIA. I know it was the CIA right now. It could be a deeper story, but no, I'm pretty sure you know, it was Alan Dulles and the CIA. So, um, But if I then go to the deeper question, well, to what extent was he acting on behalf of the Rockefellers and was that for corporate reasons or a new world order agenda or this? Or the, then, then I have to go back into the uncertainty. And so will you go right. further? You go, yeah, so in that, in that sense, right. I think it's a good point. That, about a until, until you have uh, hard evidence, you know, uh, if you saw a letter from Rockefeller uh, to the CIA, to Kermit Roosevelt or whomever, you know, saying we must do this and, uh, and then, and here's why, and then letters going back and forth. If you had documentation, then that's reason to believe that there was deep state actions. There was, you know, there was, uh, there was a conspiracy there. That's a reason to, to uh, say, okay, now I believe this unless someone can show me other documentation that this was not true, you know? Uh, so there has to be a point where you get off the uncertainty and say, okay, I believe this unless someone can show me other evidence, you know, um, at some point. Uh, but I think in general, it's very healthy and it shows a strong, what I call a strong sense of self to be able to stay in uncertainty and, um, and not have to jump to conclusions. I think that's one of the things that happened with the whole Pentagon issue uh, in the 9-11 Truth Movement is are we anchored, many of us anchored onto the belief that no plane could have caused that damage at the Pentagon. We anchored there. It was the first belief that we had and it made, it, it, it became our worldview. Uh, uh, and then we, along came evidence that lo and behold, it looks like a large plane really did hit the Pentagon. And we're going to resist that. We are, I think, if we're healthy uh, psychologically, we're able to be shocked because we're going to be shocked because we love our beliefs. We all do, you know, but then we're able to look at the evidence and say, wow, wow, I, I guess I was, I guess I was wrong, you know, and uh, one of the, so I think if we have a strong sense of self, uh, which is kind of hard to explain to people, but I think I can explain it then we're, we're much healthier and we can rest in that place of uncertainty until we have the evidence that shows us we can get off the fence now, you know? Um, and uh, so uh, that's, that's where I am on that. So uh, how does one get a strong sense of self? That's, uh, uh, that's another question, but we can go there if you want. Be quite happy to. I mean, one incident uh, in my life that was quite influential on this. I was at a meditative group about 12 years ago now, and mm -hmm. I, I was across a dinner table after it had ended with a fellow who went on to be very good friends with. And I, I don't actually remember the content of the conversation. I always say we were talking about global warming. If I'm being honest, I don't entirely remember, but I think it might have been global warming. And mm -hmm. I took one position, he took another, mm -hmm. and we were discussing it back and forth. And then at some point, he let go of his position and embraced mine and just like opened up seeing the world in a totally different way. And I was um, flabbergasted at that, right? Because that just doesn't happen. Yes, it just doesn't <laughs> like, happen. Before you grab onto your position and you hold on to your life and that's, that's yeah. how it works. And what I recognized um, in him was that there was a sense of self that didn't, um, that wasn't attached to opinions 
right? It, like, it wasn't defined by, and I've heard this, like I tend to think about this in a sort of Eastern metaphysical way, like uh, cultivating a deeper sense of self that is like the consciousness in which thoughts are arising as opposed to the thoughts themselves. Um, I've heard of the psychologist, uh, Donald Winnicott, talk about it as a developmental pattern where if we don't form good relationships with our parents, then ideas themselves can become like parental figures. So it, it yeah. has that level of assault and wounding to us when our ideas attacked. It's, it's you're yes. either attacking the self or you're attacking the parent or whatever, and they must right. be defended. And I think just the acknowledgement that's going on has to be the first step because it'd be a long journey to, to address it. Maybe you have more, more thoughts on this, but I'll, I'll just leave you with this one to comment on that. Um, I think what we don't talk about in any area of life where there are all these conflicts, and that could be global warming, it will be coronavirus as that emerges, and it's definitely. 9-11 and geopolitics is um, we don't think we should have to talk about how we talk about it and how we dialogue we think we should just get on with discussing yeah. like was it nanothermite in the towers or you know what did the CIA know about the hijackers and I feel on all these things is that there is actually a necessity to step back and have a more formalized discussion where we include in that a recognition of our attachment patterns of our reactive behavior of our inability to not get frustrated with all the people who are, are conflicting with us because if we don't have it in that slightly more formalized way we're just going to explode into reactive patterns every right. time where what do, what do you think about like the, the you know the future or the like the, the necessity of some sort of form around the way we dialogue oh i think it's crucial uh uh i know people who have done very deep regressive work as i have done and they have really heal themselves very greatly and they still don't know how to communicate with people uh they still don't have constructive communication uh, uh with others and one of the things that changed my life and i'm still learning of course is uh one of the things that helped me with that was uh, the marshall rosenberg's nonviolent communication uh, he uh, basically uh this is a very uh, good system for learning how to communicate constructively with people and my reading of it at this point is the first thing you do is you don't try to talk other people into what you believe you know but you empathize with where that person is coming from you, you first of all find empathy for that person and from that place then maybe you can have a dialogue with that person but i think those of us in the 9-11 truth movement uh, have been notorious for very destructive communication, you know, and I can really relate to getting off of Facebook because I think people waste their times and their time and all this arguing and this toxic kind of dialogue that goes back and forth, you know, so uh, So I think learning how to communicate constructively is crucial to just living one's life, you know, just knowing how to relate to people in whatever context mm. it might be. And I, I think a lot of people in Facebook forums are there specifically to be toxic because that's what they enjoy. They're certainly not there to educate themselves oh. on, on a, actually on both sides there. Um, but it's a terrible shame because we, we would be so much more powerful and educated working collaboratively. Like I noticed that in my just factual knowledge about 9-11 um, has and wider geopolitics has been developed so much um, by just dialoguing with Adam in terms of like setting up and prepping mm -hmm. 
um, the interviews and then recording them. And partly it's because, you know, when I'm reading, I've got something I've got to focus on. I've got to get to a standard where I can ask Adam these questions. But so partly it's doing the project, but it's also in the communication. Um, so you know, I, I think we do suffer from an absence when, when community suffers, when you can't have dialogues because psychological patterns are getting in the way, then it's a real hindrance. It's a real hindrance. Mm -hmm. It's a real hindrance to moving forward in any way whatsoever. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, <laughs> I think it's, it's really crucial, you know. Okay. Um, Adam, I, I'm ready to talk about psychopaths. Okay. <laughs> However, do you have anything you want to come with? Because I'd like to say, like, I'm going to edit this out, but I would like to go on and talk about the, the psychopathic mindset and the difficulty we have maybe in understanding that and get Fran's opinions on that. Is there anything you want to ask other than that, Adam? We'll go on. Yeah, to in fact, all I wanted to do was ask her uh, thoughts about uh, the competing narratives of conspiracy theories, whether it's like an epicentral or a societal uh, form of conspiracy theory. Um, and in regards to the competing conspiracies involving the attacks of September 11th, um, some of them are manufactured scenarios. And they're often the minority, whereas competing fantastical claims are basically made um, when a person is either opining them from a worldview, a biased mm -hmm. worldview, or they're based off of disinformation they learned online or right. by reading or listening to other prominent conspiracy theorists. Now, this tends to be the majority. Uh, what are your thoughts, Fran, regarding how much of these conspiracies are from manufactured consent or just basic ignorance? And a follow-up question. Or just what? I'm sorry? Whether, what are your thoughts regarding how much of these conspiracies are either manufactured or just basic ignorance? Mm -hmm. And have these fantastical conspiracy theories damaged the validity of truth groups in the present moment and in the future. How do they damage the truth movement? Uh, yeah, how, it has it damaged the validity oh, yeah. of the truth movement. Oh, definitely. Yeah, um, I ran into a young man uh, who went to Cornell University uh, in one of our actions, and uh, David and I were both there together talking to him, and uh, and so one of us said, I think I said probably. Uh, what is it that blocks you from wanting to listen to this information? And he said, well, everybody I know who talks about this is such a kook, you know, <laughs> you know, and they're just not rational. And the other thing is that my professors at Cornell uh, and all the people I, all the people that I uh, 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 trust there would say, this is all just total conspiracy theory. It has nothing to do with reality. And besides, everyone I run into, except you two, you know, are just, you know, nuts, you know, and I just don't want to listen. So I think uh, uh, the way people convey their information is very, very important. And that has been very damaging to the movement. I think, um, uh, uh, let me see, I'm trying to go back to where you started with, uh, yes, the, the, whether it manufactured or not. I would be willing to bet a lot that some of it's very manufactured uh, purposefully. I mean, we were told by Cash Sunstein that the way to get rid of these conspiracy theories, especially 9-11, that was so detrimental to our society, 
was we can't jail these folks, you know, we can't do this, we can't do that in our society, but we can, uh, we can flood the movement with cognitive infiltration, you know. Uh, and so, in other words, we can plant uh, crazy theories that are not substantiated, substantiated at all, and therefore make the movement seem very unattractive to everybody and make, make it very confusing to people. So I'd be very surprised if there was not that going on purposefully by the intelligence agencies. I, I sometimes uh, picture in my mind that uh, whatever intelligence agency, that they're emailing together and they're um, uh, sitting around talking and they're, they're saying, what can we get these people to believe now. <laughs> I bet, I know, I bet we can get them to believe that the earth is flat. <laughs> and so, and then once we get a whole movement around flat earth, we can associate the 9-11 truth movement with it. You know, so in my mind, I picture people coming up with these scenarios, you know, they're paid to do this. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but Cash Sunstein has told us that this is a way to uh, damage these uh, movements. And so I suspect very seriously that this is really going on. And then on the other hand, there are people who uh, are not as evidence-based as they should be. Uh, and so they leap on to uh, these uh, manufactured events or to events that people just pull out of the hat for whatever reason and they uh, promote them, you know, innocently, but unwittingly uh, going along with muddying the waters, you know, with, with crazy theories that are not substantiated. Um, so I think it's very detrimental to the movement. It has been for a long time. It's made it look very unattractive to people. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's, it's one of our challenges, as I, I've said several times, this is one of our challenges in this movement. The uh, other movements, the suffrage movement, uh, uh, had in the turn of the century in the 1900s, they had their challenges. Those women were jailed, they were beaten, they were slandered, you know, uh, they were uh, criticized in the media, and they had their challenges that we don't have. The civil rights movement had their challenges. Those people were killed, they were bombed, they were beaten, uh, they were hosed with fire hoses. They had huge challenges. We don't have those challenges as much at all, but we do have the challenges of dealing with unsubstantiated uh, theories and uh, people grasping onto those and running with them. And so I think David Ray Griffin in the, uh, the film Experts Speak Out really hit the nail on the head. And he says, I think there's three kind of people. And there's people who are evidence-based, there's people who are belief-based, and there are people who are wishful and fearful thinking-based, you know. And, of course, our ideal here is to be evidence-based, but there are people who are belief-based and wishful and fearful thinking-based as well. And so uh, I think, I think, now if there's different things, if you study my series, you'll know that there's differences in brain structure. You know, there's some people who have a brain structure that's more conducive to holding on to worldviews and uh, with all their might. There's, there's people with brain structures that are more open to new experiences and more open to new ideas, you know. 
Um, but I think our ideal has to be here. It has to be as being as evidence-based as we can. And I truly think that if we are very secure with a deep sense of a, a deep, strong self, sense of self, you know, of who we are, and that I think we're more likely to be able to be evidence-based and to be able to let go of those beliefs when we hear evidence that contradicts them. Have I straight too far? No, 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 that's great. No, I've, I'm just, I've got my next question in my mind. I'm just thinking about almost any, any follow-up there. Or... No, that's perfect. Okay. okay, friends, I'm really just asking the things that really stick in my mind and I struggle with as the, as the years have gone by. And um, I think a big one is the psychopathic mindset. Okay. Okay. And this is this really question does not have to be limited to, to 9-11 at all. But advice I was given very, very early on um, was that you can't think of certain people as being like yourself, computing the world like yourself. You have to just fundamentally get it that there are people who look at the world and look at human beings in a totally different way from the way you do. And until you do that, you're, you're going nowhere with this. And mm -hmm. just recently, actually, sort of fortuitously, I read the book, uh, Wild Swans, Free Daughters of China. And um, it's, it's a very famous book, but it doesn't, I don't think it gets as much attention in our kind of circles as maybe it deserves. Um, it's by a, a lady who's, uh, whose grandmother lived in Imperial China and was one of the last women to have her feet bound and she was sold off in, to a warlord in this um, very cruel environment. And then the communists came and, and took over and her mother was um, in the Communist Party, fought for the revolution. You can totally see why they did that and everything they thought that was going to, to bring. And then they lived through uh, the Great Leap Forward, Mao's Great Famine, and mm -hmm. the Cultural Revolution, and um, and the disillusionment of that, and and her recognition that she was basically in a giant cult and had to get out of this mindset then. Um, but mm -hmm. what it what it brings forth is, you know, in her study subsequent studies of Mao Mao Zedong, um, it, it it fascinated me that there's someone who um, had would openly have beliefs like it doesn't matter if the Americans nuke China because we can breed more people. Mm -hmm. Right. So even if 200 million people died, we could just we can produce more people. So that's not a commodity. People aren't a commodity where we're short off. That's that was openly uh, his attitude on that. Um, Mao Zedong. Sorry, Mao oh, Zedong, yes. the Communist leader yes. of China. Mm -hmm. uh, and reading about the Cultural Revolution, how Mao lost power in, in China um, after his uh, Great Leap Forward and then came up with a way to manipulate society and turn everyone against everyone else uh, to get it back. And it struck me with regard to your writing, that you have um, one article, I can't remember the name of the experiment, but it was a school teacher who told the blue-eyed children that the brown-eyed mm -hmm. children were less mm -hmm. intelligent and they had to sit in a different place mm -hmm. and they get different work. And very quickly it set in that they started to perceive themselves that way and animosity came about between them. Yeah. And I, I thought of that, the, if you're a sane person and you read that, you have certain thoughts about it, okay? You think, wow, that that's really like horrifying and it's going to make me really conscious of how I treat people so I don't have unconscious prejudices because I can now see how that could affect our interactions with regard like race nationality gender all the rest mm -hmm. but then it occurred to me like not everyone 
would see that that way. There are there's a percentage of people who would look at that and go, "Ha, huh, that's really interesting. I could use that to manipulate people and get myself mm-hmm. above them in some way and control them." So it's one of the things that I constantly wrestle with because you know I'm like I'm thankfully um, not psychopathic myself. Um, I don't think, and I have to think about okay, like there are people who see the world the way I might approach playing a computer game where life doesn't matter so much and all the rest. So um, what's been your sort of understanding approach to that of of trying to see the world from a perspective that is like completely alien to our own and come to understand that and what it's, it's motivation is and how can people go about that? Yeah. And I just, by the way, recently watched uh, this wonderful documentary called China a century of revolution and i don't know if you've seen that but it is mm-hmm. excellent and it gave me such a, a understanding of those people's history uh and what they went through it was nothing like our history in america i mean we're very lucky for the history we've had but uh boy they suffered through so much um so um but yeah well the, the reason I wrote the segment on people without conscience, which would be the true sociopaths or psychopaths, is because I ran into so many people who told me, I just can't go where you've gone, you know, to believe that even one person in our government, even a few, would do this. It's something, I just can't go there, you know. And another person who said, Fran, what kind of monster would have done this? Like related to talking to me about 9-11. What kind of monster would have done this? And they're just, they're good people. And they're people who don't, who believe, like you say, everyone else is like them. They're basically good people. And they have empathy and they have a conscience. Um, so I, you know, needed to read up on psychopathy and, and uh, write on that. And um, what I learned was amazing is that with the psychopaths or the true sociopaths, I just use those words interchangeably, uh, these people are actually very emotionally handicapped is the way I like to look at it. I like to try to have compassion for everyone, even the psychopaths, because I think of it like this. What if I had a son who was a psychopath? What would I want for him? I, I wouldn't want to see him as a monster. I'd want to see him as a handicapped person, you know, a person who needs to be kept away from society, yes, but a handicapped person who is very uh, emotionally uh, deprived. And so as I learned, what I learned from it, my main source of information with Martha Stout's book, The Sociopath Next Door, and what I learned from that is that um, these people actually have a very different brain scan. You do the SPECT brain, brain scans. They, their brain scans show a certain pattern. There are certain parts of the brain that are uh, reduced in volume. And there's other parts of the brain where uh, they're, uh, it's like not reduced in volume, but uh, it's something to do with the function of the brain. It's just not working like other people. And so you can recognize by seeing these brain scans, you can recognize the psychopathic brain scan. And that's basically, in my opinion, the only way you can really determine if a person is a true sociopath or psychopath is by that abnormal brain scan, you know. 
And we have to just feel sorry for people like that. Yes, keep them away from society, but we have to feel they can't love. They have no sense of what love is. They can't feel real joy. They uh, cannot uh, feel empathy. They have no sense of conscience. And uh, so we need to recognize who they are and keep them away from society. And, and interestingly enough, in our society, we reward the psychopathic behavior. In other words, we reward especially men who will be dominating and who can make a ton of money. doesn't matter who they screw along the way. You know, we reward uh, dominance and power. And so, uh, so it's not like other societies. Like, uh, like for example, I read that uh, in Taiwan, there's a moral community kind of consciousness and the, uh, the percentage of people who are found to be sociopathic is much smaller than in the U.S. It seems to be growing in the U.S. Another example is the Inuit, who would have to be a very cooperative culture. And if someone came who had those psychopathic tendencies, they would put up with them as long as they could. And then their way of dealing with that person would be, let's say he's raped the women, he's, you know, you know, he's you know, stolen things. He just keeps doing all this, this behavior that they cannot tolerate anymore. They take him on a, uh, a hunting foray and uh, with, ju with just a few, with some of the men. And when no one's looking, they push him off the ice into the ocean. You know, they have their way of killing that person, of dealing with them so that that, uh, uh, so that, that tendency is not, that is not rewarded in that society. It is rewarded in our society. And so some of these people, most of them are not killers, but some of them uh, are killers and they can kill without any remorse. They have no remorse. They don't have the capability of remorse. That's one of the things they, they lack. And uh, so you can imagine some of these people, they, power is the main thing that uh, they want, is power. Whether it's power over their family or power over a nation. And so um, these are the kind of people who will tend to rise toward power you know so there are they they say there the studies say there's anywhere between one and four percent of our culture in america are psychopathic which is really huge you know it's really a lot of people that's one in four hundred in a hundred people you know that's a lot um but there are other people who uh are maybe not true sociopaths but do not have the capacity for empathy or uh, or much of a conscience and those are the people i mentioned in my uh, that article, which are people who are uh, have reactive attachment disorder, uh, they have not been able to attach as an infant to one caretaker, and so they so they're they're actually and I'm pretty sure they're brain damaged as well, you know, from not having uh, the nurturing that they needed in life. Uh, so there's people with attachment disorder. There's people who are extremely narcissistic, uh, uh, who uh, uh, you know, just need to be, they, they're also uh, in it for power. They're in, they need lots of power. They're very much attached to their image and their need for power. And there's people with borderline personality disorder. These are all people who are emotionally deprived as well. Not as bad as the true psychopath, the true sociopath, but it's okay. still there. Let me ask you about those degrees. Because what I see when I look at like the history of violent situations is people 
will tend to in-group and out-group very quickly. Okay, so you have, um, like, you have Israelis who will set up deck chairs to watch the bombing of Gaza when that's going on as a kind of entertainment, okay? Oh, okay. Um, and that seems, like, demonic to us, except yeah. I've been to Belfast quite a few times in my life, and I can, it's one, like, one of the nicest places you ever go. Back in the 70s, when a bomb would go off in one community, the other community, sections of the other community would cheer and come out in celebration that wow. some civilians had just been killed over there and vice versa. And these are people who live streets away, but they are other, okay? And people that might have a moral code about killing in their own community, mm-hmm. you get to some sort of arbitrary line and that, that line could be skin color, it could be ethnicity, it could be geography, and you go over that line, it's fine. And and we see this with like um, well I mean our culture's just done a big time with the Iraq War okay where uh, you know the the gravity of like the hundreds of thousands of dead doesn't hit us the way like I have um, you know I have friends who will defend will say well yeah but on balance Tony Blair wasn't a bad prime minister but if he if he'd done to London what he did to Basra or Baghdad you know they would if, like, if the, if the, the sections of London blown up and people lying dead in the streets no one would say oh well maybe he's not a bad guy this guy's a monster right but because it happened over there it doesn't even really people who are very nice in the day to day address they don't we don't get murder at a distance mm-hmm. the same way and um, this has a um, that's a thing in and of itself it also has relevance I think to understanding specifically nine eleven when, when I look at like U.S. imperial history and all the coups the CIA carried out, a lot of the people involved in that seem to have been like Star Spangled Banner guys, like real, they would have thought of themselves as real American patriots, okay? And they were defending the world from the spread of communism. And I think that could extend to like believing that doing good for American corporations abroad was also being a patriot, you know, because you're extending the American way and United Fruit really should have their plantations in, in Guatemala and so on. And that's all mixed up. But I do think, um, looking at the, what I can determine for the psychological profile of them just from, from reading about such people, they might have had restrictions about doing such a thing inside the United States. That seems like you need like another level. And maybe not like the assassination of president. There's that um, uh, E. Howard Hunt's deathbed confession about killing Kennedy. He's meant to have said when he was asked why he did it, because I'm a patriot. So yeah, you can see how shooting, someone could have shot Kennedy. What did he say? He's meant to have said it was because I was a I am I am a, I am a patriot, okay? Oh, okay. So you're getting rid of this useless, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. commie loving president because that's the patriotic thing to do. Mm-hmm. But the mass slaughter of civilians takes it to another level. So it would be easy for me to understand, say, um, Zionists motivationally doing it, okay? Because Zionists were prepared to blow up the King David Hotel back in the 1950s to keep the British in the Middle East. For, and there's an in and out group, okay? And the British are in the out group, so that's okay. And maybe you could sit like, they could strategize, well, okay, we need America, the US empire to be involved in the Middle East and anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian for the coming century. So New Yorkers, they're the out group. But what I think is hard um, for people and for me to understand is the kind of the motivation then within um, the U.S. deep state, because I don't think Zionists logistically could have done it. Like it obviously requires people inside the U.S. The kind of motivation going on uh, behind such an attack. Now, I, I'm well aware that I'm asking you to speculate or just give whatever thoughts you, you've had on that. But mm-hmm. in kind of the mindset of, of people when they are prepared to like disregard even that sense of in-group and 
be motivated by I don't know what really to to go ahead of a, an event like a a nine eleven or any false flag against the the population. Yeah, I think that's what's so uh, that we can't get our heads around that. You know, uh, yes, we can understand going to war and killing people in another land, people we don't consider uh, quite as human as we are. You know. Uh, but uh, but to kill our own population, especially so many people, even though we've seen it throughout our history, there's a history of this. Uh, 9/11 is a big jump, and um, and it's really something that's so difficult to get our heads around. Um, uh, so uh, we don't know if all of the operatives were Americans or not. We, there's a lot we do not know, but a lot of the operatives had to be Americans. You know, they, they couldn't have been anyone. There had to be some of the operatives that were Americans uh, in probably intelligence agencies and that sort of thing. Uh, probably Dick Cheney knew exactly what he was doing. Probably uh, Rumsfeld knew exactly what he was doing. And by the way, I do think Rumsfeld is a true sociopath. You know, that's my, uh, Cheney, I haven't decided yet, but uh, whether it's narcissism or sociopath, sociopathy. But, uh, so it is really, really hard to get our heads around it. And, um, so because a lot, of these, a lot of these people are not sociopaths who do this, and not everyone could have been a sociopath uh, who, uh, you know, placed the explosives, you know, who planned it. Not everyone was probably a sociopath. So how do we get our heads around that? Well, and I can go I halfway. Really, I don't really know. You know, I just know, well, here's the evidence, you know. <laughs> so, so here's my difficult. Well, one thing that um, I come back to is Theodore Roosevelt wrote a letter um, back in his day where he commented that it would be a good thing if a foreign navy, a European navy, attacked and burnt New York down, okay? Mm. Because the Americans were just a lily-livered bunch who didn't have the stern, manly stuff to go out and forge an empire into the world. And an assault like that, that would bring it about. And of course, Theodore Roosevelt was around when you have the the kind of quite dodgy incident happening with the destruction of the USS Maine and then the Cuban and Filipino Mm -hmm. wars. Um, So there's that. But they, they have it for me. That is very understandable okay to me that Roosevelt did not think in terms of individual life being important he thought about the destiny of nations and the great man the strong man of history and he was going to be the strong man the great president um so deaths in New York it's a price worth paying you know in in the same way you could say Mao is uh, Mao Zedong and Mm -hmm. deaths of the Chinese people well Mm -hmm. you know who can't we're forging a great nation here what do you what are you talking people die anyway you know Mm -hmm. who cares um, and I can see that, but I can also see very, like, very clearly, because he was very, very explicit about it in the way people could be in the late 19th century. Roosevelt was very explicit about his driving forces and his motivation. He was uh, unapologetic American imperialist, and the Americans needed an empire like the British. Um, and that's, I think, what I struggle with, um, with the Dick Cheney's and the Donald Rumsfelds, of like, in a way, I don't struggle with the Zionists. Okay, yeah, I know, I know what, Benjamin Netanyahu thinks and what, you know, and Ariel Sharon. But I think that's something that maybe, maybe it's me, but maybe the wider movement hasn't quite grasped 
what is the motivation here going on? Um, I was very drawn to Mike Rupert's work for a long time, and that kind of filled that gap with the, the whole peak oil thing. Is because oh yeah, if we're running out of oil, then yeah, they have to have their imperial wars. But we're all sat here twenty years later, and the oil's still okay. So that maybe doesn't quite work. So that that's what I think um, I'm searching for in that. It's like the, the the ideology, and does it tie into some you know this kind of one world government conspiracy or something? But um, I think that it's hard maybe to fully get one's head around 9-11 without having that sense of so what what really did cause these people to take that extraordinary risk and that murderous action um in all in all of these cases that you mentioned what causes people to have that kind of behavior um and the only you know richard the i cannot tell you but the thing that comes to mind at this point in time is that um, these are obviously people who, assuming they're not true sociopaths, you know, and um, who have such a sense of separation and superiority to other people. In other words, uh, the mystical experiences that some of us have that see the that the true that we truly experience the oneness of all of creation that we're all all part of the divine and we're all one together now there's you know that they are so far removed from their true nature and their true identity and they're so caught up in their image of being uh separate and superior that they lose uh the sense of of uh compassion and empathy for other people i mean this is just the only thing that comes to my mind it almost comes down to a spiritual sickness you know um so i also imagine people who have grown up in families who are very very privileged you know, families who are very wealthy, who are very privileged, who grew up from infancy on being taught that they are superior, that they are exceptional, and uh, far different from the rest of humanity. And so that uh, belief must stick with them, you know. Uh, so I, these are just the things that come to my mind. I'm welcome if, if you have anything to share. I mean, it is something that's hard to get one's head around, you know. Uh, and yet, you know, when we think about it, uh, um, maybe we have that capacity, maybe every one of us has that capacity to separate ourselves so completely from other people that we can not be horrified at the thought of destroying thousands of other lives. No, I just don't know. I suspect we all have that capacity somewhere. It's, it's interesting when you can feel yourself slip into it. Okay, like, I mean, I find Mike Rupert's idea of peak oil, I don't think is accurate entirely. Um, I was a big believer in it for a while, and I won't go on to why I don't think it's about that. In, in peak oil, the peak oil paradigm of 9 oh, So yes. Mike Rupert um, set 9-11 in the context of peak oil, okay? Mm -hmm. And that, I think it has a functional value for me in that if I adopted that 
I could then see, okay, the world's going to run out of oil. It's going to be chaos. Billions of people are going to die. We need to control the last drops of it on Earth. So we need to get the military into the Middle East. No question about it. It just mm -hmm. absolutely has to happen. Mm -hmm. 3,000 people in New York, inconsequential in comparison. Mm -hmm. Absolutely inconsequential. And that's interesting when you can find something like that that can move you to a little bit. And I'm not saying I would like actually think that, but how I can... Mm -hmm. I can see how it's in me to go that way, you know, and it's when, when, when something is born out of necessity, it feels like this is the thing that absolutely has to happen. And the thing that absolutely has to happen, it could be Zionism. It could be like, we absolutely need to have an Israeli state and a Jewish state in the Middle East. And, you know, if people have to die for that, then, then okay. Or it could be controlling the oil or it could be some sort of global empire or an American empire, but whatever the thing is that, I need, I absolutely need this thing in the external world to be that way, then I'm prepared to kill for it and kill potentially in large numbers. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened in Nazi Germany, uh, in which, uh, from my reading anyway, uh, the, um, there was a central policy document to destroy, uh, exterminate all of the Jewish people in Europe. And uh, there were speeches given um, I'm trying to remember who it was at the time. I don't know if it was Martin Borman or um, might have been someone else who said, now this is not to be talked about. We're, I was talking to a group of, of, of uh, officers, you know, military officers. This is not, this is only be talked about among ourselves. That uh, is not to be talked about in the public. Uh, but as far as the Jewish question goes, the final solution, you know, uh, all of you know what it's like to see a hundred, a thousand corpses all lying together. And all of you remain decent people nonetheless, because this is what our country needs. You know, we need to get rid of these people. Uh, and this is what our country needs. So in other words, you're being patriotic. You're doing the right thing by killing these thousands and thousands of Jewish people and other people, of course, you know, uh, this is for the, this is for the good of our country. So you're being patriotic to do this. We all know how horrible this is, but they were giving a, a, a pep talk, basically, to go ahead and understand that they were doing the right thing. Um, uh, so it's the same thing there. I think we've seen this throughout history and throughout cultures uh, where people can um, uh, kill uh, thousands of people uh, uh, and and have a justification for it, you know. Um, and I also think back. There's some way. There's some way you dehumanize those people, though. Otherwise, you cannot do it. If if someone you love is in that group, you know, your own son, your own daughter, you would not be able to follow through, you know. Um, but the same thing is true. Which I was horrified by this. But there was a documentary I saw, I think it was on the Discovery Channel many years ago, and I still have a VHS of it, of the people studying the chimpanzees. And they would see one, this one troop of chimpanzees, the people who were studying them would watch, and the male, it would be the males, they would get together and they'd start grooming each other, you know, and they knew that was a sign that, that this warlock party was going to go out, you know. The males would groom each other, in other words, they're bonding together, you know, and then on some signal, they would all get up, leave the troop, and go out to find another troop somewhere in the forest. 
and if that troop were less had less numbers than they did they would attack and kill every one of them no reason whatsoever you know uh no they weren't they weren't killing for food they were killing it was a war party you know so that horrified me to see that and yet i believe even though we're so like the chimpanzees i believe that i still believe that if we are given the nurturing we need from conception on really in conception on through birth and we're giving the nurturing we need and the uh, uh, appropriate education but especially the nurturing by a nurturing mother you know that we will not be as capable we will not be as capable or even capable of doing that and yet it's in our genes it apparently from this study of the chimpanzees so so all i'm saying is this is what we observe with chimpanzees this is what we observe across cultures and and all i can say is that in some way though they have made that those ones that they kill they've made those others less than human you know they've dehumanized them in some way in order to be able to do that so it just seems to be an observation that we have of of these these two hominids <laughs> are you are you following this do you have yeah, no, absolutely to, absolutely do you have anything um, to say about it i mean that's just what i've observed and read yeah adam i i'm 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 pretty good at that, Adam. Do you? I've I've got one more question up my sleeve. I think Adam, and I'm just aware of like keeping Fran all afternoon as well. <laughs> yeah, no, cool. no. But I, any more? Any more from you, Adam? What what else have you? You you undeservedly took the winds out of my sails because this was something I wanted to talk to Fran for a very long time. Um, but I thought you answered it well. But I, just to to reiterate, um, this is something I've always believed with 9/11, but I barely has ever spoken to anyone about. And that is the multiple layers of apathy uh, mm -hmm. that can be shown in regards to September 11th, uh, 2001. Yes. What, what, we, what we know as a public and what has been broadcasted by the media and is almost like a quote unquote official narrative is that we see the hijackers as nothing more than fanatics and that they're void of any human empathy. Um, and so we, we broadcast this throughout the world. But... I think that is selling the public short. And what I want to almost expand upon is that in each instance detailed uh, regarding the multiple actors that are involved with 9-11, people were either harmed and killed. Now, examples are shown from like the hijackers' motivations and goals, which are different than, say, the intelligence apparatuses for a domestic whose motivations were protecting the hijackers and allowing them to conduct operations, mm -hmm. um, and which are different from the State Department who denied uh, who, or, or uh, helped cover up the crimes of 9-11 uh, so that judicial agencies couldn't prosecute properly the, the hijackers and their crimes or the people who funded these hijackers. All in all, each entity, uh, helped create this level of apathy, but they were for different reasons. Now, when we look at the hijackers, we think they're the worst human beings on planet Earth for what they did. But we don't look at people like George Bush or Rumsfeld <laughs> or Cheney, who went and created a war based upon a false a narrative on Iraq, 
which mm-hmm. helped killed over a million people. And people yes. don't look at that and say, well, you know what? That's the cost of war. But when you look at the hijackers' motivations in which they killed 3,000 people, it's almost as if that's an uncomparable mm-hmm. um, notion as opposed to what the State Department and what the intelligence apparatus helped killed over a million people. Could yes. You, could you give me your thoughts upon the multiple levels of indifference and how there could be egregious for another or are they similar? Um, <laughs> it's interesting. Um, it's reminding me of those experiments, the um, authority experiments by Stanley Milgram, uh, in which uh, two thirds of the people who were asked by an authority in a white coat to pull the lever to the point of giving 450 volts of, of shock to this learner, this student, knowing that the student had, or believing that the student had a heart problem and could die from pulling that lever. Two thirds pull the lever because of the authority telling them to do it. It was shocking to me when I learned that. I was in undergraduate school when I learned that. And I realized, and I read that experiment, I realized that I had been brought up in a fairly, not totally, but fairly authoritarian family. And I probably would have pulled that lever too. I may have. It horrified, horrified me to even think about that, you know. And then I realized, don't ever trust authority again. Always use your own judgment, you know. <laughs> but there's that level of the person who pulls the lever because an authority said to do so. And that's pretty egregious, you know. But then there is also the people, they had another variation on the experiment in which they had a person doing a subsidiary task. Uh, in other words, the person would just be doing word pairs. Uh, it didn't have any, they didn't have to pull a lever, but it had something to do, the word pairs that they were doing, it was like a desk job, you know, something to do with the other person pulling the lever. And they found that, uh, so I don't remember, I don't exactly remember how that experiment goes, but they found that the person doing the subsidiary task it was not two-thirds who would go along with pulling the lever. It was 90%. So they didn't feel responsible because they were not pulling the lever. So the people in their offices doing what they're told to do, you know, uh, uh, giving the press releases they're told to give the press, doing whatever subsidiary action that they were doing, uh, it's, it's like they're not taking responsibility and it seems to be borne out by those experiences, by those experiments. Uh, so there is a level of difference in responsibility, but, but uh, not totally, you know? So uh, I, it just, all I can say, Adam, is it reminds me of those experiences, you know, the people who are apathetic, who don't do anything about it, who, uh, uh, you know, are uh, uh, just as responsible for staying silent, really, in that way. And yet there's also other things going on. We have to think that we're very complicated creatures. 
there's other things going on, like for example, a learned helplessness. You know, I wrote about that in one of my essays. I've run into quite a few people who have said to me, well, that's too big for me, 9-11. That's just too big for me. I, I can't deal with this. It's way too big. I'm going to deal with something I can deal with, you know. So it, I don't know if it's true or not, but those people could have some something in their background, some kind of trauma or something where they were they learned helplessness, you know, and they can't go for the the big uh, issues for which they might become ostracized from their family or their community, for which uh, they might get criticism uh, or that might stimulate so much fear they don't know what to do with it. So that we were very complicated creatures. So I really don't know the answer to the question. All I know is what it reminds me of, you know. Um, so, yeah. I, one thing I would say as, as we close is one thing that's interesting in this is that I find now it's, it's not any kind of scientific poll by what's, whatsoever, but I found about half of the people I talked to about 9-11 that I happened to bring up the subject with people on the street you know, people in meetings, about half of them, uh, even just on the street, they know about 9-11, about maybe 50%. And they don't want to talk about it uh, because, but when I bring it up, or if I'm with David, it's even better because he can speak with such authority. You know, I speak as a psychologist or psychology person. He speaks as a physicist, you know, so it's great being with him. He can, he speaks with such authority, but even when I'm alone and do this, uh, I'd say about half of the people, once I bring it up, then they start nodding their heads. I, I always thought there was something not right about that story. And yeah, what about that building number seven? And yeah, what about this? And what about that? And suddenly that now that they know they're safe to talk about it, they will talk about it, you know, and and they seem relieved to do so, you know, but the other half of the people I talk to spontaneously are still just as shocked that I would even have such a thought, you know. So anyway, just in closing, that's okay. What okay, I'm friend, I have one more question if you time before we, we okay. close. And it's about All the right. chimpanzees. So the chimps are creating this really strong in-group by having an out-group, okay, where yes. they're really grooming and bonding with each other and right. And people say this about the war here, that we, the society was never so connected as when we were killing Germans. You know, that was a wonderful time. Um, so essentially, there's a, a sense of oneness being evolved, but a false sense, okay? And yeah. a really yeah. destructive sense. And this is what cults do, okay? Um, so then my question pertains to, for a lot of people, 9-11 wasn't only a temporal awakening to what goes on in the world, but it also opened them up spiritually in some sense. And I think people, I've met a lot of people who the, seeing the collapse of Building 7 or something has not only been the start of a political journey, but it's also been the start of a spiritual one. It's almost like a portal that's taken people into deeper questions about the meaning of life and human wow. nature and, and so on. And I, I, I've heard you reference a study of near-death experience. You've spoken about spiritual experience today. So um, I wonder how you see a connection between those two worlds, how they, I mean, it's, a, it's a question that people put to me sometimes, but it's not something I have a, a finalized answer to. Like, is there a connection between two or am I artificially sticking them together? But between the geopolitical and the, the events and often violence of the world and then this greater spiritual reality, what, what are your thoughts on the, 
how does that yeah. how do they relate for you yeah i i i think uh if we don't have a strong spiritual understanding it will be very difficult for us all of us to uh receive all of this dark information it's very difficult information and know what to do with it um uh and um and for some people like you say uh being shocked by these events may lead them to uh, greater spiritual understandings but i i do feel strongly that if we don't have a strong spiritual basis a strong spiritual understanding of who we all really are as human beings you know that we will have a very very difficult time with uh uh the horrific events that we are faced with in our world um so and it doesn't mean that it's a cop out it doesn't mean it's sometimes i see some of my new age friends say oh you know friend it's all perfect right and to me i call that the new age cop out <laughs> because it's just an intellectual thing that they've heard and they're repeating so they don't have to look you know <laughs> and that's not what i'm talking about you know what i'm talking about is a true spiritual understanding of who we really all are every one of us every every not not accepting anyone even the psychopaths who we all really truly are once we have that deep understanding we have a container for being able to receive this this horrible information that's coming our way and to stay uh in a sense of equanimity about it you know so so i think they definitely you know uh, the world they we're being told by spiritual people that the world is our school you know that this is where we learn and this is where we grow spiritually and that sort of thing so i'm hoping it's true i, I think it's true for me <laughs> but you know but i don't know you know what what can i say i'm very ignorant about all that and thank you very much indeed that's over and out for me adam anything else from oh that's no perfect yeah <laughs> well thanks very much and we hope to have you back on to talk about the, the most recent two articles you've written um on the media and uh, we're both very interested in how that's uh, evolved since the the days of the cia just handing brown envelopes to new york times journalists and the more sophisticated <laughs> version of that we have uh, today so yeah we hope to have you back on that and thank you very much for thank you well today. it's been a pleasure you know i love talking about all this stuff so it's been a pleasure thank you